Hi guys. Hello. Welcome back to what? That's Not Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start off the episode with our lows and highs for the week. Um, mine are going to be kind of short and sweet because I just don't have the words or maybe I haven't figured the whole thing out quite yet. But my low would be frustration and annoyance and just like feeling irritated <laughs> and like not really being able to put my finger on why or what's going on there. Um, my high excitement and gratitude. I had a visitor come for a few days and it was really fun to show someone who's never been to this part of our state um, all the things that we love about it and it's fun to see things that we probably take for granted and watch someone else who's never seen them before just get so excited about it so that was really fun for me and it made me feel happy and excited yeah I like that I felt that too when she was here. I was just like, oh, it's so nice to have a friend here that I get to see the Central Coast through her eyes and yeah. enjoy all the things. So my low this week was spanking my daughter. That was traumatic for me and her. I am probably going to get some hate mail <laughs> <laughs> for spanking. Um, I don't judge people who spank. I don't like to spank. I don't. This was the first time that I actually did spank her. And um, I felt really bad about it. I felt regretful and miserable. And I don't. I want to avoid doing that at all costs. Um, she does really well with timeout. So just keep doing timeout. We call it just go take a break. And she takes a little break and is a new kid when she comes out of her breaks. So, yeah, the spanking thing was my low. And I tried to have a different low. Yeah, it just sucked. Yeah. So bad. And she looked at me with, like, surprise and then angry and then sad. And then I felt all the emotions, too, because I was surprised at myself. And I didn't hit her hard or anything. I just spanked her a little butt. And still, it was... It sounds so, this probably sounds so dumb to people. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think a lot of people can relate to it. Yeah. And then my high was this. I'm realizing too, as I'm saying this, that this is such an Enneagram two high and low that it has so much to do with other people and their emotions. Um, so seeing my husband super happy and joyful made me feel a lot of joy. Like his joy was very contagious. And that made me very happy. He got to hang out with some old friends, and I loved seeing him that happy. Aww. <laughs> that makes me want to barf. That's so cute. Such an Enneagram, too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so we're going to jump into today's topic, and we'll be talking about compassion fatigue and how that kind of leads to burnout sometimes and um, some other interesting things around compassion fatigue. Molly, do you want to define what compassion fatigue is? So according to one of the studies we found, it says compassion fatigue is absorbing trauma and emotional stress of others, which creates secondary traumatic stress. Yeah, and I definitely can relate to that. I've experienced in my work life some 
traumatic stress, secondary traumatic stress, and how that led to compassion fatigue? Yeah, in mental health, addiction treatment, and hospice, basically every shift throughout the whole shift, we're dealing with very traumatic things. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily traumatizing for us directly, but when you're constantly surrounded by other people who are in chaos or in the middle of a trauma, that can wear on you as well, even if you don't necessarily feel it at the the time or you don't notice it right away. Yeah, and that's basically what secondary trauma stress is, is this emotional and psychological effects experienced through indirect exposure to the details of the trauma of somebody else. And that's what we do in mental health every day is hearing the traumas of everybody else. Yeah. Every single day we're hearing about how, and we're seeing it. We're seeing what those traumas are causing in their lives. Yeah. And in hospice, literally watching a person die and watching a family watch their loved one die and seeing how people react and deal with those things. Yeah. And it gives me a lot of empathy for social workers and therapists and law enforcement officers and firefighters and all of these careers that these people are facing these secondary traumatic stress experiences. Yeah. Or even like before I became a nurse, I was working for the state um, in the office where they review disability claims. And so people file for long-term disability Um, based on an injury or an illness or whatever that says they can't work anymore. And I think compassion fatigue came up a lot in that area where you're reviewing these cases day in and day out. And you're thinking, just go get a job already. Like, okay, you might be experiencing compassion fatigue. You might need a vacation. (laughs) (laughs) You might need a career change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I also have a friend who was talking about how he is a records keeper at a large police department. And so he sees the actual photos of people who have died very traumatic deaths, people who killed themselves, rape scenes, just all of like he's seeing that daily. And at what point, is that desensitization? Mm -hmm. At what point are you experiencing um, post-secondary traumatic stress? At what point is it compassion fatigue? Like what is the bar and where is that measured? Yeah, I think in order to be successful at any of these jobs, you have to learn how to roll with it and keep on going. And there is a certain amount of desensitization that happens just because that's the only way your brain can cope with taking all this stuff in. Eventually you get used to it for lack of a better word, which is not normal. It's not healthy, but you do it because you have to, you got to keep working you got to pay your bills and you know, you got to do what you got to do. But the result of doing that for an extended amount of time can kind of lead to, what we're talking about here, I think. Yeah, I think um, I'll give an example of when I had experienced compassion fatigue and what I think may have been like some desensitization and um, just how I dealt with that and what happened in that situation. So when we had a homeless shelter, me and a couple friends had opened up a homeless shelter and I talked about that in the first episode. 
we had a lot of our homeless community, community, chronically homeless people who would come in and get their coffee and hang out somewhere warm, which we wanted and we loved. We also had life skills classes and we would do different classes about boundaries and how to fill out an application, all those types of things um, that they wouldn't come to. And it got, it would get frustrating sometimes. Some people would, but most of the time it was just coffee in a warm place. And so I would get frustrated, even though on one hand, I loved that we had a place like this and that we had friends that we could commune with and just get to know. And I get that it takes a really long time to build trust with this community. Yeah. So you can see their see why they're hesitant to accept your help in the first place. Yeah. And I totally get that um, and understood that. I think where I would get that compassion fatigue is dude would go to the bathroom every day at whatever time and go get high. And I would set those boundaries over and over, you know, like you're going to have to be kicked out now for two weeks. You could come back in two weeks. And of course he, he would blow up, call me an effing bitch and a whore and all like, I'm the, I'm the devil (laughs) just blow up this big scene, leave. And then of course, come back two weeks later and do the same thing over. Yeah. And so after a while, I, I don't know. I don't think that's desensitization, but I would, I started to just be like, you know what? I don't even care. I can't even talk to this guy. So I would give that case to somebody else. Like you need to have this person because I can't handle it anymore. And I think that was a healthy way to deal with that, handing that case to somebody else. And we do that a lot in the psych hospital if we've had the same person for three days in a row and we just are exhausted, that compassion fatigue sets in. Or where I notice it is if a patient or someone I'm dealing with reminds me of someone in my life that I have a hard time dealing with, I'm like, oh, this sounds just like so-and-so and that shit's driving me nuts. And so I can't give the patient the fair benefit of the doubt or the amount of empathy that they deserve because I'm actually burnt out on someone else's shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I totally see that. Having enough self-awareness of handing that case over to somebody else is so smart. And hopefully you have a team that is able to understand that. Yeah. And I think it takes practice being able to recognize like, okay, I'm out of my league here or this isn't a good fit for me and I need to pass it off to someone else before I do something that I'll regret and like maybe I'm going to yell at this person or I'm going to take my anger and frustration out on them or I'm just not going to treat them with the respect that they deserve. Um, Stop, take a breath, say, okay, like I'm playing this out to the end and it's not going to look good. So I'm going to pass this off. I think for me, like when I was younger, I felt like it was a reflection of my ability if I couldn't handle it. Yeah. So it made me feel bad about myself and it, it made me force myself to do things that I wasn't comfortable with or that I didn't really want to do because I felt like, well, I'm a nurse, I should be able to, or I'm whatever the thing is that I made up in my head when it's okay to just say, I can't, or I don't want to, or I don't have it in me today. Can you please do this? And hopefully, like you said, you have a team or an environment where that's supported and not punished. Yeah. 
and that people aren't going to hold it against you. And to know too, like, oh, you can't deal with this type of thing, but I can. So let me take that from you. I don't mind that version of drama or, (laughs) or whatever it is, you know, I can deal with that type of thing. Um, but the next time this type of thing comes in, I need you to do it because that's just the thing I can't. Yeah. Communication with yeah. your team is yeah. huge in that. And I think you brought something up that was pretty interesting is your age when you were younger. One of the predictive factors of burnout and compassion fatigue is age. The younger you are, the more, the higher chances you have of having compassion fatigue. Yeah. And I wonder if it's just because... We don't yet know what our triggers are. We haven't quite, for me anyway, I didn't know what my triggers were. I didn't know how to set boundaries or I didn't feel comfortable doing it. And maybe as you get older, you gain more experience. You start to recognize those triggers before it gets unbearable or before you're full on burnt out. Yeah. And you just learn how to advocate for yourself the older you get too. Like, I used to just go into work sick all the time because that's what I thought I had to do because I didn't want to like make anybody else work my shift. Yeah. Why can we call in sick with no problem when we're not sick? But yeah. <laughs> but when we are, it's like, oh shoot. Okay, I'm gonna call it I'm gonna call in five minutes. Yeah. Um sorry, I'm really yeah. sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny. I think it's interesting too that compassion fatigue outweighs your satisfaction at work. How that leads to burnout. And I could totally understand that. Yeah. I can totally see how the things we do every day, other people wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. But the reason that we can and that we're successful at it is because the satisfaction of the work outweighs bad. Yeah. (laughs) The The, trauma, the... Yeah. Outweighs the the fatigue because no matter what you're going to feel it everybody in these types of environments and this type of work is going to feel that compassion fatigue yes no matter what so first recognizing what it is and how you are triggered by that and recognizing how to cope with it Mm. is I think the important part of what we're trying to bring up in this episode today yeah I think too like when we're dealing with this line of work, mental health and addiction treatment, you're not seeing the results of your efforts and the results of your interventions immediately. Like we were talking earlier and you mentioned like if a diabetic has low blood sugar, we give them glucose or a snack or um, whatever they might need. And you, within several minutes, see a change and you see that what you did worked. Yes. It's and, instant gratification, yes, instant <laughs> yeah. satisfaction, yeah. instant gratification. But in this line of work, we might really be focusing on tiny little changes or tiny victories, or maybe not quite a victory, but it's less bad today than yes. it was yesterday. And so that's an improvement or it's less bad today than it was a month ago. It might take 30 days for you to see just a teeny tiny little change And so I think when you don't have that instant gratification, it can be frustrating because you might not think that what you're doing is working or that all these things that you're trying, you're not seeing the results. And so um, we might get a little bit hard on ourselves 
Yeah. And that's what I'm seeing at the psych hospital too, is we get patients in who come in every other month and with some of the same issues. But when we have our team meetings, we're like, okay, yeah, they're here this month again, but it's a little different than last month. Like this time we're seeing some improvement in this area of their lives or this time they're not violent or this time, whatever it is, it's, yeah. it's finding the silver lining, I guess, but realistically too, because sometimes people come in and it's like, okay, there is nothing that we're doing that's helping. So we need to call some outside help or figure out a different route or figure out something else. I love that because that's super important. Recognizing, try everything you can, take out your arsenal of interventions, what you've learned, what you've tried before that's worked and recognize that you've given it everything you've got and what you're doing isn't working, then it's time to outsource to other resources or do something different. Yeah. Because of course you're going to get fatigued when you keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and nothing's making it better. Mm -hmm. Then maybe this facility isn't the right fit or maybe this treatment isn't the right fit or whatever yeah. it is. Don't just keep on doing the same thing over and over again and then getting mad when it doesn't work. Yes. And I think that's where the organization comes in because as nurses, we're higher, we're, we have a higher chance of compassion fatigue and burnout when the organization that we're working for isn't addressing some of those issues. Like if this person were to come in over and over in the org organization and the higher management and upper management, it's like, oh, that's fine. Deal with it. You guys deal yeah. with it. Why isn't this working? And then blaming the nurses for why something's not working when we're just given all we have and the resources that we have available to us. When we have leaders that are like, okay, let's talk about this and how can we figure this out? And yeah, maybe we do need to use some outside resources and maybe we do need to figure out something else. Yeah. And how that support from the organization will decrease burnout and compassion fatigue. Yeah. I recognize in myself, like I have this, I can do this. I can figure this out and let me just, you know, think about it a little longer or take a step back and, um, you know, change the subject in my mind, go do something else and come back to it, whatever. And I have a hard time asking for help because like I've mentioned before, sometimes just because I can do something, just because I can probably figure it out doesn't mean I have to. And if I have other people on my team that I can ask for help and they're willing and able to give it, I'm learning that delegating to my coworkers or to my supervisor or deferring to the social worker, who's the expert in this? Just yeah. because I can do it, just because I know some, some things to try, um, doesn't mean that I have to. Mm -hmm. And if somebody else is available and specializes in this area and they're just waiting for a phone call, why not defer and delegate so that I'm not so overwhelmed and putting so much pressure on myself to solve all of the problems in my eight hour shift? Yeah, I could, I could probably get us there. I could figure it out, but at what cost? Like get home from work and I'm super stressed, super irritable, tired, all the things. Yeah. Why am I so tired? Or why was today so hard? Well, I had to do all these things. Well, 
but did I? Probably not because there are other people that I could have used as resources. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying when, because I notice the compassion fatigue. I notice it within myself when I am coming home and I'm not as kind to my husband or as um, engaging with my daughter or not helping out around the house as much. Whatever it is, I see that, okay, I'm doing way too much at work and not allowing other people to help me out. And that that's a problem that I run into a lot for myself is I think I can do it all and want to do it all. I don't like asking other people for help because it's a pride thing. I, I want to show that I can do it. Yeah. And prove to somebody somewhere, I don't know who, myself. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's what's going to lead to burnout. So it's not just a personal thing too, like like we just talked about. It's an organization thing and it is a personal thing. So I think the combination of the two is... Yeah, being willing to ask for help and knowing that that's supported and appreciated. Yes. And I'm learning how to do that. Like working hospice the other night... Um, I was at a patient's house and it was a very long visit. There was urine and feces all over this person. And it was just, it was really hard. So I did everything. I thought I had some feces on me because I still smelt it when I was driving. I'm like, there is crap all over me. I just know it. (laughs) And the girl I was working with is like, there's another patient in this area. Like I can go if you want me to, or since you're, finished with that visit do you mind going I was like please can you go I just want to run home and take a shower really quick yeah <laughs> it's, normally I would just be like okay I'll change in my car and I'll go see this other person um but and she was amazing like yeah of course I'll go and yeah she had offered it in the first place because she knew that visit was so long right and isn't that funny we're like you think you have literal shit on you and you're still trying to figure out a way like well I could go and like maybe there's no shit on me and it's only 30 minutes away. And then it's like, no, dude, just go, go home, home and take a shower. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. That's exactly what she said. She's like, no, dude, just go take a shower. It's fine. <laughs> like, please do. Yeah. So. So now that we've talked about what is compassion fatigue and how it leads to burnout, and we've given a few examples, I want to share some coping strategies. And we'll start with some unhealthy or unhelpful strategies So some of the unhealthy strategies might be working longer hours. Drinking whiskey before work. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. If you have to get hammered in order to be effective at your job, something needs to change. (laughs) You might be burnt out. Yeah. Drinking whiskey after your shift. If you have to go home and have a drink every time you finish work because you're so stressed, stop and think about what you're trying to bandage up or what you're trying to cope with. If you're not delegating, like we said, if you're not taking breaks, I think this is such a small thing, but it's so impactful. Um, Where I work now, you get two 10-minute breaks and an hour lunch. And I make sure to do that. And I think not everybody does. So stop and take a break where you're doing no work, not chart over lunch, not take phone calls over lunch, but really just fully disconnect and give yourself some time to go for a walk or do some deep breathing. 
if you're not saying no, if you're bottling up your feelings, which this one I struggle with too. I think it's really hard for anybody who deals with HIPAA. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to talk to people about what you did at work today. You can't share. I mean, you can try, but in order to do it without violating any HIPAA laws, it's really difficult. So sometimes we're forced to bottle things up because we don't want to violate someone else's privacy. If there's other ways that you can do that, like maybe reaching out to, like I said, the social worker is on your team, is part of my care team at hospice. And I can say, man, I'm really struggling with this person today, or this was a really tough visit for me. And have the social worker maybe intervene or, hey, I just need to vent. This is what's going on. Finding someone that you can talk to without violating any yeah, rules or laws. I think something that the hospice nurses do in our area, too, is they get together, have some food and have a drink and just, like, not necessarily talk about their patients, right. but just be able to, like, have a group of people who understand yes. what you're dealing with yes. on a day-to-day. Yes. And, too, I think... For fear of burning out your families or your support system, we don't necessarily want to share all the things that we see and do on a daily basis because it can make our loved ones worry about us Mm -hmm. and it can probably be a cause of some secondary trauma for them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I feel like I shouldn't share with certain people because I don't want to burden them with my feelings. Yeah. Are you procrastinating and avoiding? So I think I tend to do this one too, where it's like, oh, I just don't have the space for that or the energy for that right now. And so you put it off, but then the pile just keeps getting bigger and say, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. But then tomorrow's set of circumstances comes up and now you have to do that. Plus the thing that you didn't do yesterday, Yeah, being a perfectionist, taking work home, taking on social justice issues, which I think is huge right now in this political climate that we're in. There's so much going on, so many causes that need representation. And can we take on all those things and be effective at work? It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard if you don't talk about it and if you don't make time for hobbies. So I think it's important to realize that compassion fatigue is over a long period of time. And then that's when burnout happens is like at the end of that overwhelming compassion fatigue. And I notice it in my life at the burnout point. Yeah, we notice it when it's already too late. Yeah. So starting to learn what that looks like, what these things are bringing up, like as you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I start neglecting my hobbies, neglecting the things that I love like Muay Thai or going to the beach or surfing, all of these things that I find so much joy in, I just completely neglect it when I'm starting to have that compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. Some things that we can focus on instead to try to combat that compassion fatigue. I think first off would be eating and sleeping and exercise. (laughs) I'm going to say that over and over again. Isn't that not the answer for everything? And it (laughs) seems so simple, but... I struggle with all of those. Yeah. Yeah. So self-care, which I think encompasses all those things. Mm -hmm. Self-care is not just go get a pedicure and treat yourself. Although sometimes that can be what you need. 
it's not always some glamorous spa day thing that you do. I think, like you said, eating right, sleeping right, working out, being mindful of the things that you're consuming, like TV shows. That's a good one. Yeah. If you're sitting around watching a bunch of women arguing with each other and throwing wine in each other's faces and flipping tables around or real uh, reality TV murder documentaries all day long, like all that stuff gets into your psyche and gets into your brain. And I do love a good documentary about cults and serial killers though. (laughs) (laughs) I can't not watch those things. Although when I am just getting off of a shift from the psych hospital and I just want to like check my brain out for a little bit, I cannot watch anything too serious. Like it has to be funny. Shit's Creek. It has to be something funny and light and I, that doesn't take too much emotional energy out of me. Yeah. I'm in a pretty much no TV mode right now where I don't have a TV. I have been watching Ted Lasso on Apple TV, which is super funny and light inspiring. And it's just like gives you the warm fuzzies and also makes you laugh. So that's where I am. But yeah, it's like, are we watching TV to numb and to check out and not be active participants in our lives? Are we watching awful traumatizing stuff and finding entertainment in it? Yeah. So self-care, self-awareness is really important. Recognizing your triggers, recognizing your moods before work, after work, when you're getting ready for the day, are you already crying? (laughs) Because I've experienced that. Same. Exactly. Like (laughs) I cry before work. I cry after work. Okay. There's an indicator that something's off here. Are you snapping at people? Are you snapping at your patients, your coworkers when you get home? Are you snapping at your family? I notice too when I have a lot less compassion and empathy for my friends if they're struggling with a problem. Mm. And I'm just like, figure it out already. Get over it. Like I can't. Like you're you've been talking about the same shit for I don't know how long. When are you gonna just get it together? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not very nice. And that's not what I want someone to tell me when I'm struggling with a problem. (laughs) You're just not a very good friend when you're exhausted with that compassion fatigue. Yeah, Yeah. totally understandable. And like the stuff that we're dealing with all day is so heavy. Sometimes when I get home, I do just want to check out and I don't have the space for one more trauma conversation, one Mm. more hard thing express that to people and set boundaries for when I'm able to receive someone's hard stuff. Mm -hmm. Like we have such a great friendship where we're able to do that with each other. Like I called Molly yesterday after a really hard day. And I was like, do you have the capacity right now to let me vent? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like kind of funny. I think that we ask each other that because it's unusual. Like it feels a little weird and it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I have capacity, but it's important. It's important to ask and to be able to say, "Eh, not right now. I'm sorry. I've got my own shit going on. Yeah. And not take it personally when somebody is saying that. What I want to bring up too, and while we're talking about this compassion fatigue and the secondary trauma, um, not to have this. Okay. 
I always want to find the silver lining in things and I always want to find the positive side of things. So this is where this is coming from. And I'm not trying to do this like toxic positivity type of thing. But when I put into perspective that I'm receiving this secondary traumatic stress and I'm receiving all of this stuff and my I'm starting to become fatigue of all this compassion and empathy. What is the person on the other end? Like they are actually experiencing this trauma sometimes since they were babies. Mm -hmm. Their entire life, they have been experiencing this trauma and you're hearing about it from this person for the first time, or maybe it's the 10th time, but they've experienced this their, their entire life. So Putting that perspective to it is helpful for me now Yeah, where I'm like, okay, this is maybe new for me to hear this from this person, or maybe I'm hearing this for the 10th time. I don't know, but this person has been dealing it with their entire life, whatever it is, their mental illness, their trauma, their abuse. Yeah. I think that helps me in working in hospice. You know, a lot of people ask, how do you deal with death all the time. And that has to be so hard. And one of my common responses is it doesn't feel the same for me as it does for them. You think about it in, in your own perspective. What if I had to watch my dad die every day, Monday Mm -hmm. through Friday from eight to five, of course I wouldn't be able to handle that. And when he does die, I'm going to fucking fall apart like everybody else does, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like that for me when I'm helping another family go through this. Mm -hmm. I don't really know that person. I don't really know this family. I get to know them to a certain extent throughout my process, but that sadness and that grief, that overwhelming grief, Mm -hmm. I don't feel that. That's not my pain. So So you could be supportive in that because it is not your pain. Right. Yeah. And having that perspective is super helpful. Yes. So when I going back to the psych hospital when I'm there and hearing these stories, that's not my experience. So I could hold that space for this person and try to have this perspective of, okay, this is this person's life, their entire life. This is just a moment of time that I'm hearing about it Mm -hmm. and I could hold the space for it in a healthy way. Right. And if I can't, then I'll ask someone else to do it. Exactly. Like I said before, if you've exhausted all your efforts and you've tried everything, it's not working, crying and drinking your whiskey after brushing your teeth on your way to work (laughs) or whatever, you're feeling maxed out, then maybe it's time to get a different job because it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that bad all day, every day. And if you're miserable every day, maybe it's time to do something else. Yeah. And that's what I had to do for a little while. I had to quit that for a little bit and do something else. And yeah. And I'm so glad I did because then I found psych nursing and I love it. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is good. Yeah. Good talk. Yeah. If you guys have any questions about compassion fatigue. If you have any stories you'd like to share with us, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at That's Not Crazy Podcast. We will talk to you next week. Bye.